You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. In this side series, we explore the history of philosophy and its most notable thinkers, from Socrates to Nietzsche, covering all the big ideas from the ground up. Enjoy! You recording? Yes, I'm recording. Ah, so I've returned. You've brought me back to your dungeon. <laughs> uh, cave after months of not doing the podcast you lured me in with pizza so you had some pizza and then i went oh i'll go into the house then they're like boom doing a plato podcast and you, yeah. you trapped me and now we're doing plato so yeah well we did try this a while back and i think we've kind of realized in this series like now we've moved on to plato who's the first guy to write things down it's like okay we need to actually change tact a little bit here and we've decided to split this episode up because Plato's Plato talks a lot, Plato writes a lot and it's it's difficult to unpack lots of his ideas. So we're going to go through it as thoroughly as possible, I think. Right. So this first one is going to be early dialogues and just to give you an idea of the early history of Plato, who he is, where he comes from, you know, why is he such a big deal, I guess, or well, partly why he's such a big deal and we'll get on to more of the meat of his ideas in a later episode. Um but yeah, should we launch into a sort of overview of who this guy was yeah. and why you've probably, if you've never heard of philosophy, you may well still have heard of Plato, heard his name, um, if not at school and in popular culture, yeah. being one of the most influential philosophers in the West, you know, uh, probably one of the largest catalogues of Western philosophy from that ancient Greek period, or at least one of the first ones. Um, and as such, becomes the basis of much of our knowledge on Socrates, uh, many pre-Socratics, and also many figures and politicians at the time who do have a part in Plato's writings. We'll get on to why that is. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the first things to say is that Plato's always been read throughout history. He's gone through sort of fading popularity, um, especially with Christianity. There's like a few periods and times where a lot of his work was missing or lost or kind of not favoured particularly well, especially compared to a student, Aristotle. But generally, people have always read Plato and certain people have always loved Plato. Um, so yeah, hopefully at the the end of these, uh, I don't know, we might do three episodes, we might do more, we might do less, but hopefully at the end of this discussion on Plato, you'll hear some of our opinions on Plato, but mostly I'm hoping to just like get out a sense of, well, who was he? Who was the actual bloke? And what can we know about him? And why was he so important? And uh, I guess we can start then with the context of why he was even writing and uh, the context, I guess, of ancient Athens. And right. Ancient so, Greece. I mean, this was a guy born you know, back in the 5th century BC. He was born in 427 BC, uh, which was basically a few years into the Peloponnesian War. Um, and he was the son of uh, his father called Ariston and a mother called... Was he uh, really the son of his father? <laughs> yes, I see. <laughs> Perhaps not. Maybe I should make an addendum there. Um, and he had two brothers and a sister. And he grew up uh, receiving a musical, philosophical, and gymnastic education. And uh, he liked to write uh, lots of like quite yeah sort of juvenile epigrams and tragedies. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, lyrical, tragic poetry and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, um, none of that really survived, unfortunately, or very little of it has, if any did. Uh, he was apparently quite handsome. Um, and the name I've, I've heard, I don't know how true this is, the name Plato um, is, he was named after for the width of his shoulders, apparently, pretty damn broad shoulders. Yeah, he's a wide um, boy. 
Yeah, and he had uh, he he twice won prizes at the Isthmian Games, um, which is like a festival of athletic and musical competitions in honor of the sea god Poseidon, um, which is sort of held on like the second and fourth years of each Olympiad. And he yeah, the, the name so the nameplate oh, that could that's almost definitely to do with wrestling, but obviously the broadness could also be either his head. Apparently his head was pretty broad. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. or it could have been like the broadness of his ideas. But yeah, probably because he was into wrestling. And I think that like competitiveness and um, an interest in other things that aren't just sitting on Cheslongs and talking about philosophy is going to come back into it as well. Yeah, but yeah, that's, I think that's why it's important to set that up as well. Yeah, and also sort of around this period when he was growing up, he also aspired to be a playwright. So he was originally on track to, you know, write these tragedies and comedies and, uh, you know, be a writer in, in a more general sense. Yeah, he would have been pushed into politics. And I think, there were certain things going on in politics very young in his life even then he would have been critical of he wouldn't have, i think he from what we know he would have been sort of pressured into politics and he was more of like the artsy fartsy like i'm gonna do this bollocks right. and run off with socrates and do things yeah but um speaking of which it was pretty much after he met socrates which was somewhere around 407 bc when he was around 20 years old uh, that he totally quit his sports and he burned his his writings of like all his his tragedies and whatever and um just decided to take up philosophy and got really inspired by this uh you know enigmatic socrates character uh, who we discussed in an earlier episode i mean so we could talk about a bit um where socrates sort of was at this time or at least um i mean socrates at this time as, as we sort of covered in the, in the previous episode was this figure that you know was supposedly sort of corrupting the youth and taking on loads of pupils and students and plato happened to be one of those sort of students and he has such a profound impact on plato himself um that plato's writings there thereforth would pretty much at least the socratic writings would almost always feature socrates as a main character in them so i think yeah if, this is like a story so socrates's death and trial would be the inciting incident for plato I don't know how much of an impact it really had. I don't know if it was like the thing that spurred Plato to do a lot of his writing, but it seems to have had a very profound, dramatic impact on him. Like really shook his life up in a big way. I would way. say he certainly seems the kind of character, judging by his past in writing, he seems like someone who would have written anyway. Uh, the difference is I think that he knowing socrates and getting that philosophical education and then also the trial of socrates and everything that happened there and the critiques that that brought of uh, the athenian state and the, the political climate at the time sort of inspired his writing to turn into these sort of philosophical uh, dialogues which critique much of whether it's politics or philosophy or just literally there to try and um, uphold some of the ideals that socrates had or project some of his um ideas about metaphysics or ontology into the world through uh through dramatization yeah so this was this was 399 bc when uh socrates was put to death um, apparently plato himself he, he he writes in one of his dialogues later that he was plato was ill during the actual trial but basically him and socrates had spoken out against the 30 tyrants um they they'd been criticizing it and then democracy had been restored in Athens. And it was democracy that actually put Socrates to death. Right. So this is not that long after the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War, which did not uh, turn out well for Athens. 
Um, and then in that sort of aftermath, you've got uh, you've got these these thirty tyrants, these like historical figures, where Athens was in this sort of push and pull between becoming a democratic state and becoming a sort of oligarchical state. Um, and eventually, these sort of thirty tyrants, sort of inspired somewhat by sort of creating a bastardized version of the Spartan uh, way of organizing uh, their rulers. Uh, kind of created this oligarchical structure in which they tried to have, you know, their detractors murdered off. And basically, things did not go very well uh, for democracy during those times. Um, and I mean, Plato's own family and lots of his associates were uh, were associated with these 30 tyrants as well. So we did have a lot of close ties to these Yeah, well, the, the 30 tyrants um, during that regime, they actually asked Plato to sort of come and work for them and get involved in politics. That was a large part of where that sort of aristocratic uh, pressure was coming from um but yeah he rejected it because he fucking hates uh he hates tyranny but then yeah when the when the democracy is restored they're also trying to clean house and get rid of detractors and i think they were very eager to sort of push socrates under the rug for some of the sort of outlandish things he was saying going against the status quo and i think this is a large part of i think this is a central theme to a lot of what plato wants to say it's not that he hates freedom he does not that he hates democracy because i think that's very strange like this very prolific thinker actually hating democracy but i think it's it's to do with exactly what democracy meant back then something slightly different to how we think of democracy today and it's not so much that he doesn't like it he thought more that people weren't ready for it and he saw that firsthand with the death of socrates he thought that was a very poor choice he thought that was people abusing their choice um which is why he's going to have such a strong idea of education. He thinks people need to be educated before they can uh, make choices. And um, it's, it's why he's very bitter in one sense. I get the sense he's bitter anyway. I think a lot of scholars kind of go with that approach. They sort of go, oh, he's, he's the, um, he's kind of, it's not necessarily an angry philosopher because of this, but he is very keen to sort of challenge doxa there's like uh, everyday, ordinary, accepted opinions right. that, are just, that are just sort of... Which would have believe. come a lot from the inspiration of Socrates, which we've yeah. talked about before, of that sort of idea of deconstructing someone until um, until they either have to give up the fact that they don't know what they're talking about or redefine what they believe. Um, or you know, Well, so after this, the trial of Socrates is again like 399 BC. Uh, Plato feeling, you know, not particularly good about Athens at the time, uh, went traveling. And we're not entirely sure where he traveled to. Um, a lot of a lot of stuff I read, they say he went to Egypt after this. Yeah. So maybe Egypt, um, probably Italy. Yeah, well, uh, it's, Italy was almost definitely later, but again, we're not 100% sure if he did. Uh, but in this in this first period of traveling, yeah, there was there was perhaps, um, yeah, it was perhaps Italy, perhaps uh, Egypt. Uh, again, we're not really sure, but the point is he sort of went on his soul-searching journey. Yeah, I like to imagine he um, skipped a lot of stones looking into the Mediterranean <laughs> yeah. Sea and just like looking at his reflection going, who am I? Yeah. Did a very long gap here. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was about a 12-year 12 12 long gap yeah. here, yeah. Um, and during this period... He wrote what we are going to be focusing on in this episode, which is his what is normally grouped into his uh, what I call his early dialogues. Mm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about dialogues and what they are, and sort of essentially what we mean when we say a dialogue instead of just like a book or a um, 
you know, or a story or, or just a work, you know. We, the reason why we uh, say dialogue is because uh, Plato was kind of like, he innovated this form called the dialogue in which you have multiple characters all just engaged in conversation about particular topics or whatever. Yeah. And he uses this as a device, sort of almost through this narrative of this conversation or whatever, um, to bring forward questions about philosophy, about politics, about just about pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, and that's how he sort of got through and discussed his ideas. Mm. Well, it's, yeah, it's basically a chat, uh, often a drunk chat between uh, elites and generals and friends and uh, experts on certain subjects. And a lot of the time, uh, it's kind of out of time. It would be a bit like if if somebody wrote a story today with uh, like Quentin Tarantino, Greta Thornburg and uh, Margaret Thatcher all having a chat. Mm. A lot of the time it's um it's like ancient Greek crossover fan fiction. Somebody, right. Somebody they're sort of they're there. fictional dialogues, but yeah. they the point is that they were often casting real people. Yeah. Um, and, and they were written to an audience that would have known who these people were. So and that's that's kind of part of the context that's sometimes difficult for I guess like students to get. Because you kind of have to know who these people were to get in on a lot of the jokes because they are meant to be Funny. They are meant to be entertaining. I think that's a large part of, part of what Plato wanted. He wants to actually actively change the world, have an effect on it. And I think the dialogues were are a way of doing that. Right. And I think a lot of that comes from his, as I've talked about before, his history as a playwright, where he started off. Like, had he not necessarily had that um, strong sort of narratives uh, sense in him, it may not, he may have written in a different style, or may not have been quite so um, keen on it, like innovating the dialogue style in the way that he did, um, or perhaps even been more direct in addressing his ideas. I think it comes from Socrates as well, because if, if people remember when we we're talking about Socrates, we said he never wrote anything down. And I think the reason for that is because he thought philosophy was something that has to be spoken about. He wasn't interested in having a legacy, but he also felt that, uh, well, from what we can infer, Socrates didn't really want to write anything down because he thought that was kind of like stagnant. It was the death of philosophy. It, it was too instructive. And what Plato wants to do is sort of tease the answers out of the reader right um in that so, sort of socratic yeah. way a dialogue form can in essence get start to get closer to what a dialectic would actually be like in the sense that you can have it not only sort of mix myths and philosophy together and use story but you can also uh, adapt itself to the individual the, who's reading it and it can respond to queries in a way that a book just stating facts cannot like you can have another character that is skeptical of a particular view that you mm. and and you can have this sort of very organic way in which the characters trade these ideas and analyze them uh in a way that you won't necessarily get in, uh, in, in, a, in a more straightforward sort of non-narrative style. Most of these are sort of debates. And the point is that, as, as you said, Socrates believed that this sort of dialectic debating style was where philosophy was, you know, really born and really properly um, criticised and where ideas could really be figured out. Um, and so the dialectics were kind of a way to try and get closer to that in writing. It also meant you could do stuff like repeat arguments. And and one thing that's common in dialogues is sometimes things will be repeated over and over again, which you just, you wouldn't normally see in a modern form of writing that wouldn't do that. You can have it, it could almost be like a real conversation where we say things, especially me, I will say things over and over again sometimes uh, without necessarily realizing it and um yeah dialogues can sort of do that for you yeah i think i think plato would have really liked podcasts come to think of it <laughs> but yeah now he likes he likes um all opinions sort of being covered but it's so not just about presenting a balanced argument it's a lot more than that it's a lot more to do with method 
that and the method that Socrates would have used, the Socratic method that we talked about in the past, this sort of um, line of questioning that's getting to the truth by exploring almost what's already implicitly known. So you, you'll be like, you have Socrates as the main character, always questioning people and saying like, well, do you accept this? And they'll go, yes. And they'll say, well, do you also accept this example? And they go, yes. And then you'll sort of like cross-reference them like, a, like some kind of lawyer and go, well, if you accept that and that, then surely that follows. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, yes, I do. Yeah. Of course, Socrates. Yes, Socrates. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. Um, yeah, and it probably would have been a little bit less, uh, you know, friendly <laughs> with Socrates a lot of the time. I think, you know, he's obviously held up in a... Yeah. Um, well in, in these sorts of dialogues, you know, he, but it would have been pretty annoying to have been on the uh, receiving end of Socrates uh, going about your day. There's, um, yeah, well, there's, there's a historical romanticized, almost nostalgic concept to what these dialogues were trying to do because I think they, they hearken back to an age obviously when Socrates was actually alive, but also a time when these conversations uh, were possibly held more frequently in less turbulent times. Um, so I think, I think that's part of the appeal in the, in the context of when people were reading them. So yeah, a lot of the time it is probably a little bit more civil than it would have been. But ideally, it, this Socratic method is supposed to be a collaborative effort. It's not, it's not like a debate in the modern sense where people are going, no, I'm right and I want to prove I'm right. These both people are both trying to reach the truth together by sort of playing devil's advocate to each other. And that's really important. Right. And also um, it allows Plato to remove himself directly. Well, obviously it's been interpreted what a perhaps um, Plato putting his views into these dialogues through other characters being spoken as through other characters. In a superficial sense, there is no direct Plato is is telling you what he thinks about this particular thing. A lot of it will take place through a dialogue and it, it's ambiguous necessarily what is something being espoused as Plato's, um, you know, what Plato thinks or, or necessarily what Socrates thinks or what a character in this in this uh, fictional dialogue would actually think, whether whether or not they really would. And so that's, you know, that's, that's another big part of the dialogue so that he can sort of remove himself from it to a certain extent. But um, fundamentally, I think one of the reasons why they've survived so well and why so many people do study them and read them is because they are dramatized like this. They are, they are much easier to read. They're, they're fun to read. They're a, lot, they're a lot less dense to read. When you've got characters um, describing things to each other or arguing with each other, that drama does create an environment where you remember, you remember that more of a dynamic and you learn with these characters. Yeah, I'd, I'd see, when I studied this fucking years ago, um, a lot of people seemed to not like a lot of these dialogues because they felt that it was very detached. They felt like they, Plato's own voice wasn't really in it. And also, there is an indirectness in the sense that often, even when Socrates is putting forward ideas, they're usually being affirmed by other people. So he's now he's not saying anything like, oh, look, I really, really believe this very strongly and you have to agree with me. It's usually just like, here's an idea. And then everyone else goes, good idea. It's not like anyone's particularly passionate in a very obvious sense uh, a lot of the time. 
Although, yeah, although we will say most, as, and we'll get into a, a sort of bit of the trend of these dialogues, but in many cases, Socrates' approach isn't to necessarily present an idea, at least not at first. If, if he does, it'll normally be way later on after he sort of sort of exposed the ignorance or exposed the fact that the person, he's, his interlocutor in, the, in these discussions uh, is not necessarily as knowledgeable about the thing that they claim to understand um, as they truly are. So to sort of give you an idea of, to start to move in, to uh, the idea of these actual writings. I mean, Plato's wrote, we think, around 35 dialogues, maybe about 13 letters. They're all sort of grouped together. They're at, called epistles. At least 27 of the dialogues are, I, I would say, around 27 are definitely his. Almost no question. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's a, somewhere up to 30. Yeah, I had yeah. up to about 41 could potentially be. Yeah, uh, that is, but like, but yeah, yeah, for, yeah, 41 is like the way overestimate where some of it's almost definitely not Plato. Um, the, the middle ground I, I'd normally see around the mid 30s is normally where I see. Yeah, that is what works that like most yeah. people probably think is Plato. But yeah, like you fewer works than that that we know are like almost definitely this was something by Plato. Yeah, I just want to say it's, it's also very unique for somebody to write entirely in dialogues like people didn't really do this at the time and they haven't really done since uh but the big ones you will have heard of are the symposium the apology perhaps um the republic is a, a very big one well i mean i mean the, the apology is normally grouped into the trial or something you'll normally see stuff like the what's called the apology and another one called crito and but normally grouped into the trial or like something to do with Socrates' trial is normally how it's, it's rebranded these days because it's easier to sort of package them, um, which again are, are the books that directly address the end of Socrates' life. Um, yeah, you see them in compilations quite a lot. Yeah, and um, yeah, like I said, Republic is the work uh, that if you know one work from Plato, people will probably reference the Republic as being his biggest work and also the one that probably has the most of his ideas in. But for this particular episode, before we get to the Republic, which we'll do in a later episode because it's such a massive one to do anything, what we're going to do is talk about this first 12-year period when he went travelling and wrote his first uh, sort of period of works, um, or at least we, we believe that these all sort of fit into their first period. It's also worth just work, uh, talking about how we uh, separate these into periods. Why do we think that they're, why do we, why do we have a sort of early, middle, late? Why isn't it just, oh, there's like a chronological order? Yeah, p part of it is thematic to do with um, what Socrates is actually doing in these dialogues and what Plato is using him for. What kind of character is he? Is he closer to the, uh, the I guess, the more truthful historical account of what we can infer Socrates was actually like, or is he just a character that Plato is using to espouse some of his own ideas? Is he talking about the types of things that Socrates probably would have talked about, or is he talking about more aloof ideas? Is he, is he coming up with big theses about the universe, or is he just you know, annoying people like he probably was more likely to do? That's part of it. Um, and I think it's also, there, there is like the chronological argument as well as it, when he was actually writing these things, at what stage in his life was it? Because we know the laws was pretty late. We know that the apology was relatively early. But yeah, the, a lot of this is just to help us get a handle on some kind of order, some kind of categorization. There's a lot of room for debate, a lot of room for error. 
it's always being revised. There's always right. scholars kind but of... Some of the ways in which we, we get at, try to guess um, the chronology of these texts, or at least try to place them roughly into a sort of time period, one of the ways is, is actually stylometry, which is essentially, if you if you know people who try to detect like fake paintings or something, um, it's the same sort of idea where you look at like the very specific qualities of the writing or the way it's written and things, and you try to group that into other texts that have, a, have that similar way it's written or similar trends in the writing. Another one is... Uh, the obvious ones is just references to other ideas. So if, if a text references something from an earlier time, we know that comes after that particular text or an idea, or, or it talks about something coming up, you know, then, then we can get an idea of that this text of, of where it was sort of placed in the body of work. Um, and we, we have hints uh, based on how these texts were sort of historically uh, grouped together and hand copied. I mean, one of, one of the main uh, sources we have in the name that often comes up in these things is a guy called Diogenes Laertius, who was a sort of major source on Greek philosophers from the medieval period, who's one of our, you know, few middlemen connections to that ancient period. Mm. And, one of the, and often when we have to like figure out how these texts uh, were packaged, which in, in Plato's case were often grouped into fours in, in, in antiquity. And a lot of the reason uh, why that was was because Greek uh, plays would often be grouped into uh, three tragedies and a comedy. Um, and so in a similar fashion, uh, Plato's works were grouped into these fours. And that's just part of the sort of style of how um, certain texts were passed on and copied. And so that can give us evidence of how, you know, what texts are kind of, you know, part and parcel of each other. Um, and so essentially... Come to the modern day, yes, there's there's no like universal agreement on like a chronology. It's almost impossible to tell exactly, you know, for the most part, uh, uh, where exactly a text came or when it was written. But we can guess based on all these criteria roughly what period in Plato's life did he uh, um, write these texts. Um, and like I said, we're going to start with what's called the early period, and th this is what he wrote post-trial, so 399 BC, down to around 390 BC. So this sort of eight, nine-year period. There is actually a debate that he might have even written some dialogues while Socrates was alive, but that's almost definitely yeah. not true. Well, yeah. we yeah, we don't really know. It could, it could be the case. I mean, most people just take it to be, you know, obviously this, like you said, the inciting incident of Plato's life, which encouraged him to go off and write and have his introspective moments. Yeah, um, certainly more romantic. Just, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's a nice idea that, yes, he, he ran away from Athens and wrote this first early uh, period of dialogues. These, these early dialogues uh, include things like the Apology, Crito, Euthyphro, which uh, books you might have heard of. And they're seemingly more grounded in kind of, like I said, truth. And it's, a, it's probably a more accurate portrayal of Socrates. I think what he wanted to do was sort of typecast Socrates as this uh, kind of wise figure, really cement his legacy and do right by him after he died. Uh, and again, it, this wouldn't have been too exaggerated because people knew, like people were reading this and they would have known Socrates. So I doubt it would have been just a complete fucking lie because a lot of these early conversations are likely to be conversations or versions of conversations that would have taken place. So if you'd have just completely made everything up, it would have been like, well, uh, we, you know, we were there. We, we know what really happened. Socrates ran away crying. Right. Or whatever. Well, I mean, there's there's obviously other other writers and historians who. Uh, did write about the trial and wrote about um, Socrates, these sorts of things. So we have other sources, and we mentioned them a little bit in the Socrates episode. But the point is that, yes, there are some references here where we can cross-references with other works or other 
you know, other evidence at the time to tell how much of this uh, was accurate. And yeah, so the apology in Crito, um, as you just mentioned, the apology was most of what we covered last time, which is to do with Socrates making a great big speech at his trial. Um, and Crito um, is is one of the friends of Socrates. Um, and this work is simply about the sort of period after when he's been sentenced to death. And it's it's Crito himself, as we talk about um, going and talking to Socrates at the, at the end of yeah, his life. Yeah, usually the name is a clue. That's a, no, normally the name is the main person Socrates is talking to in that dialogue. Hmm. So um, in this one, yeah, it's Crito. And Crito tries to get Socrates to leave and escape with him before he's executed. So the trial's just happened and... He's like, he bribes the guard, he comes in and he says, right, come on, let's, let's run away. I can bribe a load of people. We've got a bunch of people waiting outside. We can get you out of here. Of course, Socrates wants to have a long conversation about justice <laughs> instead. Yeah. And he's not interested. And he's being, you know, he's being his usual self. He's being ironic. He's being kind of annoying. And Crito basically gives him a bunch of arguments. Basically says, come on, do right by your sons. Think about your sons. Uh, You've got a duty to everyone to, to basically be alive. You're going to make us look like mugs if we don't get you out because now we've done all this bribing or whatever. And I think a principal importance is the idea that Socrates has been wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. And then Socrates is like, right, well, I'm going to respond to that, but you're going to have to let me sort of unpack all my ideas and you say sort of yes or no, You do, do the, the dialectic stuff. You know, do you, do you agree with this proposition? Do you agree with that? So he says things like, what most people think isn't the case. That sort of argumentum ad populum thing of like, uh, just because lots of people agree with something doesn't mean that it's right. So for example, if you had an athlete, who would he be more likely to listen to when it comes to his health? Would it be a physician or would it be his fans? Obviously it'd be the physician, Crito says. Um, so things like that. And he basically ends up through this uh, Socratic method, very classic Socrates, and he basically just says, I'd rather stay here because uh, essentially two wrongs don't make a right. I, d I don't really want to... Again, it's this conversation about justice. And this is a this is like a very central right, Just because he was wrong doesn't mean yeah. he should violate his own principles or... Yeah. In, in, and with, in his case, he was... Um, he was certainly sort of accepting death. And there is, there is a certain... Um, you do wonder to a certain extent if a large part of it was him being aware that towards the end of his life he could make a sort of statement out of himself by um, going through with... Yeah. You do wonder, because I mean, obviously it's, it has become one of the most famous trials in, in all of history. So Yeah, it's like well, what I think we were discussing last time. Was it stubbornness or was it this sort of superb moral courage or was it something else? Yeah, was it some four-dimensional chess he was playing to yeah. be in the history books? Who knows? But... It doesn't seem likely because, again, he never wrote anything. So, yeah. you know, maybe maybe he just regretted that at the last moment. But anyway, that's that's pure speculation. Right. Yeah. And, and so so those two works, yeah, most of them we did cover um, already. Um, and then yeah, another one of Plato's works, which is one that you've um, read more than me, I think you, you've did this one at university, is Euthyphro. Yes. Which... Um, is what's called, I'm going to use a kind of cool word that I learned recently here, as anatreptic. And anatreptic means that it's essentially inconclusive, that it doesn't actually give you a conclusion to what the, the question that is posed, sort of, or like what the theme of the thing is about. And so what, what is that theme, Connor? I've got aporia as that, as that word. So if a conversation, aporia, if a conversation yeah. ends in aporia, it's, uh, oh. it's kind of like a very classical philosophical uh, 
Is aporia yeah. like the Greek word for? Yes, I believe so. So yeah. I don't think because anatrap- I think anatrapsy is the English word for. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, that, that's interesting. So yeah, aporia for. Um, yeah, so you theory for so one theme about these early dialogues is that unlike some of the later stuff we'll see, they are very much specific to a very certain kind of virtue. Again, he sort of teases this unification of virtues, the idea of the good of of some innate uh universal concepts but really they're just conversations very very small conversations about one specific thing and in this case that specific virtue that specific quality that he wants to talk about and he's usually talking to experts or self-professed experts in these qualities he wants to talk about in this one piety and I guess justice as well, but it's sort of piety and goodness and justice and how right. they. Before I before we go any further, I just one thing I want to do is talk about what virtue actually means in a Greek context because this is something that's like obviously that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, because even if you know what virtue is, what they what we say when we say virtue in the context of Plato, particularly in these dialogues, is actually sort of a placeholder or a translation of of this word arete, which is probably more broadly described as like an excellence or a competence, like a skill or bravery or the ability to like achieve one's like highest potential. That that sort of thing. It's like, it's, it's an embodiment of the best that somebody can be. Um, and that's kind of what they're talking, more accurately what they're talking about when they say virtue. It's like this, this embodiment of this, um, this higher potential. Um, and, and yeah, and things like the good, again, sort of we the way we translate that uh, is, that's a very dodgy translation of what was a much more sort of abstract thing that you can sort of infer from context in these uh, writings but what they're normally sort of getting at is this sort of higher idea this almost pure metaphysical idea of the good like in in you know it's almost a theistic sense that we have today but back then it wasn't you know it was almost this purely metaphysical idea yeah something and uh immaterialism is going to come in a lot later that's sort of the idea of like something transcendent, something above material experience. This is kind of Plato's thing anyway, um, much more than his student Aristotle, who we're going to get onto uh, at a much later date. Uh, but so this is often why Plato has been seen as kind of a poster boy of Christianity and is sort of known for exploring more... Funnily enough, both sometimes a poster boy of Christianity and sometimes really hated by Christianity, yes, like yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on the, you know, the decade. That's, yeah, that's why I said sometimes. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like sometimes Christians just fucking despise Depending them. on, yeah, which idea you need to get right for you to work with your religion sort of thing, you know. Well, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, in these early dialogues, he's less concerned about that, but it is it is still there. And I guess that's something to, to note. It's like the theme of early, middle, late isn't as cut and dry. There are obviously a lot of, we're going to see here, like there's, there's a lot of theological ideas even this early on in his dialogues. So hmm. this particular dialogue, uh, he's talking to a guy called Euthyphro and it takes place just before Socrates' trial, but it was probably written after the Apology in Crito and all those. So Euthyphro is sort of hanging around this court because he's about to dob in his father for murder because one of his father's workers killed one of his slaves uh, if i remember correctly so he tied up this worker the father and he threw him into a ditch and then just sort of forgot about him so it's manslaughter really uh and he died from the elements so uh euthyphro is here to basically completely dob him in 
and like file a massive suit against him and sentence him to execution. So obviously that really interests Socrates because of the ethical context and just the pure conviction of this guy that the actual, the, uh, the sort of, um, it's just astonishing to Socrates that somebody could do this. And what he wants to sort of unpack is, is a kind of moral and religious certainty that Euthyphro has because he's like, oh, you must be an expert in piety. Well, you know, a few weeks, I'm going to be on trial for impiety. So you can teach me now what impiety is. Because in reality, this would have been so much more annoying. Like, it's, yeah. so, it's so sarcastic. He's just like, oh, you're the expert on this. Yeah. Why don't you tell me, you know? It's just like, oh, you can, t- oh, if you know so much, you can teach me now. Go on. <laughs> yeah. give, give me a definition of piety now, you know, <laughs> while we're standing here in this hallway. So they go through a few definitions, basically. Um, they talk a little bit first about the Greek gods and how problematic they are. And they do sort of move away from a more conventional view of worship and piety. There's a thing that piety is, is interconnected in this context with justice. So that's really what they're talking about. They're sort of interchangeable. And I think that's to do with an ancient context of religion that we don't any longer have. Do you, what's, uh, so to give us some idea of the religious context of going on in this sort of period, what is, what is the sort of faith context of much of ancient Greece during this sort of fifth century? Um, so it's obviously a polytheistic, you know, the Greek gods, Apollo and Apollo, the Greek god, or is he not I can't Roman? Remember. Fuck. If it's a planet, it's probably a, it's probably a Roman god, but I, yeah, right. well, it's I poly- can't remember. It's polytheistic. I always get them mixed up, so don't yeah. worry. Yeah, lots of different ones. And it's to do with kind of making offerings and providing services to the divine. And obviously Socrates has a much different idea of that divine. His is more abstract. Um, but I think also it's, it's worth noting that even in a conventional context, so doing these offerings and doing this uh, a sort of an offering and a sense of worship isn't just a, an act or a ritual. It's not just ritualistic entirely. It's also to do with an orientation of life. So it's also to do with behavior. So if an act is pious, it is an act, an ethical act as well but interestingly there is a separation between an ethical act and a pious act but i think what they want to get at in this conversation is when do those two cross over so what exactly is piety in an ethical context you know aside right. aside from laying down a reef at the temple of zeus you know mm. what- so to set the stage i think one of the one of the sort of um problems that socrates ended up getting down to and the, the question that he sort of poses uh, it doesn't really get answered, but it's it's, an int- it's one of these slightly technical sort of questions. The best way I've seen this phrased, and the way I like to see it phrased, which is kind of an oversimplification, but we'll dig into it, is, is the pious good because it is good in and of itself, or is it just good because it is loved by the gods? And so you have this idea of like, is there a difference between what is pious? So like when we do something that is pious, are we doing that because the gods love us to do that? Um, or are we doing it because it's good and the gods love good things? Or, you know, are the gods, is what pious and what is good just two totally separate categories? <laughs> and um, Or I think there's four or five different ways you can sort of post this argument. But the, the idea is it's sort of teasing apart this separation between piety or holiness or acting in a holy way with 
acting in a good way and saying, are they the same thing? Are they different things? Yeah. What, what do the gods think? What is pious is also good? Or do they have different opinions of what is good and pious? Should we act always in a good way? Or do yeah. the gods have a direct communication with the good? You know, again, using yeah, invoking it's, it's, the good in a more metaphysical sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pulling apart um, ideas that can be transposed to the Abrahamic God. So the problem, the problem with this question is why it's such an important theological question and why apologists, uh, people who defend religion, have been trying to answer this question for so long is because whichever way you answer it, because there are probably are only two ways to answer it and if you frame the question like that, uh, whichever way you answer it, there's a problem for God or a problem for the religious believer. So if something is good because God likes it, well, then it's just arbitrary. Then it's based on the whim of God. And you have to do a lot of, well, why is what God says good? And it's just a whole circular argument. Hmm. If it's the other way around, if things are good outside of God and that's why he likes them, well, then you just created something higher than God. So why bother with God? It's like, you know, why is why is God even the middleman in that situation? And surely that kind of undermines the goodness, the holiness of God in some sense. And surely that means that there will be things as well that are pious that are also not good, which would be strange. Yes. So so the way they get to this, he starts by saying, okay, my first definition is of piety is exactly what I'm doing now, uh, dobbing my dad in. And Socrates is like, well, that's an example. That's not actually a definition. Socrates loves his definitions. So he goes, okay, well, piety is pleasing the gods then. He's like, that's good, but... Surely that can change from God to God. And doesn't it's too relativistic, it's too vague. Actually, it's shit. So then thirdly, he's like, okay, it's what all the gods love. So what, what all the gods love is pious. What they all hate is impious. So he's like, well, that's good because that's that's sort of more universalizable. But then, yeah, this Euphrophro dilemma comes in because Socrates says, well, yeah, is something pious because the gods love it or God's love it because it's right. pious. And the other and the other sort of dilemma that rises as well in this text is the idea of uh why would the gods like some things over another? Why and this 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 whole di- dynamic of well, if I worship um if I worship the gods, why would they like me to do certain things? Because surely if they're gods, they don't need me to do anything. Mm. Um, and then I believe Euthyphro likens it to this dynamic of like uh, the master and the slave. Like the, the slave, he tries to argue that, well, the slave does things that the master needs the slave to do. But then Socrates goes, well, look, but it, the god wouldn't need, like but in that case, then the, why would, you know, the why would the god be needing something? Surely the god could do it themselves. They wouldn't need a slave. Um, so the argument doesn't really help itself. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. In, it's interesting that a lot of these questions are packaged in what on the surface appears to be a very, uh, I mean, really, it is a ethical question. It's literally about justice. It's about something very real happening around them. They're literally standing outside a court and he's about to do this thing. So it's very interesting that uh, even in such an early dialogue, they would be sort of equating some of these ethical ideas to something as abstract as the nature of God and goodness. And I think that's a large part of uh, the theme in Plato's work, which is um, connecting ideas that to a modern audience seem very aloof and seem very abstract to very grounded real everyday issues yeah and so that's i'd say that's a pretty good rough summary of uh, euthyphro do you have anything else to sort of put on 
any other interesting aspects of that uh, dialogue or um again it's one of these dialogues that ends in uh what did you call it oh it's anatraptic yeah yeah because basically they come full circle because he says the euphrifro dilemma and euphrifro is just like what's that i don't i don't really understand i don't understand the question so he's like well if a box is carried, that's nothing intrinsic to the box. The box only becomes carried when you start carrying it. Like that's nothing to do with boxness. Same with if something's loved or beloved. It, it, that only happens when it's loved. It's, it's a quality you ascribe to something based on what's happening to it. So same with the gods, the gods love of something. So that thing independent of God's love is not good. God, the God has to first love it for it to be good. And he's and Euthyphro is just kind of like, well, I mean, they chat a bit and then they they, they talk about um, justice in service of the gods, but then basically the dialogue comes full circle and Euthyphro just sort of shrugs and walks off. Yeah, and he's just like, well, I've got to go now. Sorry. <laughs> and Socrates is just like, oh, well, I didn't learn anything from that. And then it ends. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Talk about some more early dialogues yes get the next one in are we recording yeah oh fuck okay right so the next dialogue early dialogue i'd like to bring up for is not really in any particular order these are early ones but um let's go with ion next um this one is one that comes up a few times but it's essentially themed around uh like skill and art and you know whether whether this the ion the eponymous character in this uh, in this work really has knowledge of what he does or any skill um so to set it up basically um socrates is discussing art with this homeric rhapsodist called ion and a rhapsodist at this time they're sort of like the people who would they're like a cover band. They they like go around doing like re impersonations of these poems. They they don't write poems. They sort of go around performing poems. And he was he was what one of Homer's sort of rhapsodists. Well, he was a rhapsodist of Homer's writings, like when people do Shakespeare now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he'd go around performing this stuff. Um, and so the essential theme of it is that Socrates tries to sort of like boil this guy and ion is really really arrogant he, he's not he just comes across like an absolute you know a prick um he sort of he, you know he starts he starts by asserting you know he's like one of the best you know rhapsodists in in all of greece and then that he's like the number one expert on homer and that you know he really understands homer and socrates kind of goes well okay well what what is it that you really have knowledge on about homer like do you do you really understand art this writing do you really understand what's going on um and he'd be like yeah no i'm you know i'm i, I know every all this all this stuff about homer and he'd be like well so surely if you're if you embody knowledge about uh, about these plays about right about um homer's uh, rhapsodies then surely you would also know about hesiod if you're so sort of like you know if you know all this stuff about but you know the poetry itself and he goes well no i don't really but like, okay so what is it that you know do you just know like rhapsody is that a is that a skill in itself sort of thing and gradually it's sort of socrates kind of just being like this guy's really arrogant but socrates is kind of going up to someone who's a performing artist and going you don't really make any art like and essentially yeah. socrates point by the end which is plato kind of channeling his ideas about this sort of thing into to, um, through Socrates, uh, sort of 
asserts that poetic art is not an art at all, but actually just a divine gift. Um, or this idea that a lot of this art just it, is a sort of divine inspiration sort of thing. Ion sort of at one point towards the end of the dialogue starts going, well, you know, I'm also like the greatest general in Greece. And like, it's just like, there's nothing that apparently this guy isn't the greatest of. Um, and Socrates is like, well, look, if you can't, well, look, Homer's poems have these things in it. Are you an expert? If you're an expert on like Homer's poems, surely you're like an expert on the things that are in the, like you're an expert on like fishing or whatever. Yeah, I think he's attacking, he's attacking like the lowest form of a thing he really hates, which is, I, well, Poetry is very controversial for Plato. And I think it goes back to that whole, uh, there's this idea that obviously good is transcendent and that things come from a higher place and the dislike of doxa as well. And the fact that his most favored idea of good is a eudaimonia and it's, it's kind of fulfilled goodness, but it's the same with absolutely everything that he likes Right, well, eudaimonia is sort of like the Greek word for a sort of flourishing or fulfillment. It's it's not necessarily happiness, which is what it's normally, which is probably the easiest thing you can say to someone. Else. Eudaimonia is basically happiness. It's not because it, it has all these ideas about meaning and fulfillment and flourishing as an individual sort of built into them. Yeah. So when he's talking about the soul and the order of a person, he is striving for a kind of, higher appreciation of things and he doesn't like unchecked opinions he doesn't like uh, unqualified views he he likes uh informed expertise so to him like a philosopher is is actually a very rigorous thing and he thinks that poets aren't really like that a lot of the time he thinks that uh so i think this is part of why he's he is like laying the groundwork of Western philosophy because he's defining what a philosopher is through these dialogues. Yeah, so he, he basically going up to Ion and going, well, do you actually understand what art is? Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what the art you're performing is? You know, are you really channeling some kind of knowledge about the art or is it some kind of divine inspiration or is it, you know, what is it that you're doing if you don't really have knowledge of what it is? Um, I guess that's, yeah, the sort of fundamental theme of this. Although it does, like I said, it does kind of conclude with uh, Socrates asserting this idea that art is this divine form of inspiration. Like most dialogues, the Ion sort of eventually concedes. <laughs> the next one uh, might just do a brief little little look at uh, Gorgias. Um, so this one I'm not as familiar with as many of the other ones, uh, but it's essentially uh, Socrates having a bit of an argument with a famous rhetorician in Greece. He was one of the, actually one of the most famous um, rhetoricians in Greece at the time, one of the most well-known one, uh, the, again, eponymous character Gorgias, um, who was a sophist. And basically Socrates um, is, is debating with him and his pupil that rhetoric although possibly giving power and persuasion, produces beliefs without actual knowledge. And so a lot of the sort of premise of this thing is this idea that these rhetoricians who are sort of often politicians or in a way like, or sophists, as, as we've sort of mentioned before, which is almost like the entrepreneurs, the wordsmith entrepreneurs of Yeah, very, of very relativist people that to do X to get Y, kind of, uh, they fulfill a function. They just sort of come along and be like, I will, they're a bit like, lawyers for hire sometimes right. other times but the, the idea yeah. is if you can if your 
better at tying someone up with words and your arguments than that you know that puts you in a more right position or it gets it gets your own way essentially um and a, a lot of the crux of what uh, what this piece is about is that this this idea of rhetoric uh while in some ways it can be useful it can lead to people believing in arguments and, and manipulating uh, arguments that aren't necessarily true because they're very good rhetoricians but not necessarily um speaking truth or serving in, as, as socrates would put it a higher good the good you know and also part of this piece is is there's themes of like it's it's um it's worse to do wrong than to suffer it again a theme that will come back later with a lot of plato's writings this idea of corrupting your soul from committing wrongful actions and essentially the a lot of it sort of concludes being about the limits of politics and philosophy um in itself uh, not just rhetoric uh, the sort of limitations of what can be achieved through these through philosophy and politics and dialogue um and the limitations of where we can go um not just entirely through rhetoric but through dialogue itself and so, and so in that way it is it is an interesting uh, an interesting little one and you get to see you know you know the big wwe wrestling match between socrates and gorgias the sophist you know like big famous who may have never met in, in real life who knows probably never did who knows let's chuck a little shout out to protagoras so Actually, no, before we do that, let's mention that the one that we're not really going to talk about or cover very much um, is uh, the lesser and the greater hippias. And one of the reasons why that is because there's, there's there's a slight question mark over their origin. Uh, it's, it's generally, I think now the consensus is they were written by Plato, or at least uh, the the lesser Hippas was written by Plato. But um, the fact it is pretty questionable and uh, also the, the quality of the writing of these particular dialogues is, is much lower than the other ones. Um, and, and thus they're kind of, uh, yeah, they're, they're swept aside and somewhat rightly so. Uh, but essentially the lesser one is a dialogue in which Socrates argues with a guy called Hippias, who's another sophist, about voluntary versus involuntary wrongdoing. Um, and the greater one is a, a, a debate about the beautiful, about defining what beauty is, what is beautiful. Um, and uh, again, both texts of questionable authenticity. Um, and so some people will start to group uh, what we're sort of like putting into this category of early, but um, a lot, some people will call these the next sort of dialogues pre-middle dialogues or dialogues that seem to sort of separate themselves a little bit categorically for one reason or another from uh, these sort of earlier dialogues yeah i think a lot of that is to do with um generality as well uh, i think as these dialogues continue these starts to open up into more broader conversations and like i said socrates is starts to become more interested as a character in other things like bigger political questions and questions almost like about the cosmos about the nature of god and lots of and the soul and um other right. very get more metaphysics strange realms and things yeah, yeah. um and the first one let's let's mention uh, protagoras first so um protagoras is essentially another big sort of like socrates versus and in this case it is against the great uh sophist protagoras um who and they begin basically discussing whether virtue can be taught um and there's also themes about pleasure and whether pleasure is good and that sort of thing and essentially uh I mean, it actually starts. Uh, is is another one of these like hedge dialogues where 
essentially starts with Socrates and an unknown companion. And he basically says, well, um, recounting a conversation that he'd already had with Yeah, they're often, they're often stories contained within stories, which right. is quite funny. So the, the main bulk of the story is set up uh, as Socrates telling, <laughs> recounting this dialogue he had. Um, and then the second part sort of goes into... Um, where Socrates is going going to this house of this guy called Callias, who entered who was entertaining Protagoras at the time. Um it's where the, this dialogue takes place. Um and Socrates says he will go with this guy called Hippocrates, who um is who is intending to meet with Protagoras as and sort of see if he can get some tutorship from Protagoras. And Socrates kind of goes, like, hang on, let me let me go vet this dude for you. Let me just like protect you from his sof- sophistry, you know. Uh, so, so he just sort of like tags along and goes like uh, to, you know, quote, protect this guy from uh, uh, Protagoras. And um, essentially, quite immediately, obviously, Socrates gets to business with Protagoras um, and uh, basically accuses that he cannot uh, teach what he professes because uh, when uh, Protagoras sort of starts talking about um how to teach politics you need to be able to teach virtue you need to be able to teach like bravery and courage and things like this and wisdom and and these sorts of virtues that is something he can teach that like parents and the home environment can only teach to a certain extent you can only embody like these you know teach about what these sort of virtues are a little bit and then his his Mm. role is to come into this uh young man's life and teach them really you know the real knowledge and the like the real the path of what uh this real these real virtues are and to a certain extent he's sort of um sort of like believes that he can aspire to a sort of higher thing than he necessarily can and socrates so socrates starts by quizzing protagoras on whether he even knows what virtue is he just basically goes well, well okay well, what what is virtue you know that the classic socrates one-liner someone says something and he goes well what is that <laughs> and uh and basically they go into this dialogue about um how can you know how can he be good if he doesn't know uh, what virtue is um and also and Protagoras is also one of these guys who pretends, you know, he he believes that sophistry should be like rules. He believes that like these, you know, these sophists and these these people, these wordsmith. Just just taking um, a step back a second, why do you think Socrates or Plato or, or whoever really cares about this? Why why is he interested in asking questions like this to people? Why does he want to? Say, why does he care if if he can define virtue or not? Because I think a lot of this is, again, sort of Plato targeting uh, a sophist or targeting uh, someone who maybe is pretending or lying about knowing more than they potentially know. And again, hammering home that idea that um, a lot of this is probably not knowledge that they actually have or trying to expose that sort of ignorance. And in many cases, just trying to boil down a definition of a particular thing. Um, in this dialogue, uh, that thing is is talking about things like virtue. and um, Yeah, I, I, I think it's... I think it actually seems to change because some of the some of them he appears quite confrontational and uh somewhat rude um but in others i think he's genuinely trying to work with somebody right um because he, he compares it to uh, sort of midwifery he compares it to like your he's like healing their soul almost mm. um by trying to teach them things that they already know Right. And I mean, I mean, in the, I think one of the things that I've sort of noticed is it's definitely the ones where he is more sort of antagonistic towards the people is normally when they are a sophist or when they are someone who is this figure who is aspiring, you know, is like maybe a politician. Or yeah, something it's, it's is, almost like they don't even claim to represent anything. I think that's what angers him slightly more. Um, right. 
Well, you know, when they're when they're clearly not uh, people they necessarily would have liked or Plato would have liked. It's, yes. it's unclear, but you can tell there's certain people uh, he definitely paints in a much more negative light and has Socrates kind of go in pretty hard on them. Um, yeah, I think, and, I think it's trying to establish standards and, and genuinely learn from some people. But yeah, in other cases, I think it's a bit more of an assault. Yeah, in other cases. But, but possibly justified. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, they are they are all about sort of like teaching something or learning something there's also some theme or message going through them it's just yeah necessarily the sort of surface level aspect of the dialogue uh for, for however much you can read into whether it's you know socrates trying to be you know more aggressive than normal or whatever or trying to be more reductionist than normal uh you know that's that's a different case and obviously that some of them in which he he merely questions and some of them in which he does um put forward alternative definitions and things and sort of has more of a back and forth with his interlocutor where he talks about okay well here's my idea of uh, what this is and then the interlocutor has a chance to actually like um you know debate whether Socrates' idea of this particular thing is correct or not yeah like, like i said i, I think a lot of the reason why he doesn't often actually provide an answer is because Plato wants you as the reader to discern what he's thinking through this conversation, or he wants you to come to your own conclusion through witnessing, uh, in many ways, a real conversation. But I think also part of that sort of vague, speculative, playful stuff, which is, is really unique to Plato. Like I said, no one else writes in dialogues, and it's they, most people would like write a treatise or something. And they would be very direct about what they say. I can only think of, like, I think Nietzsche and, uh, you know, there's a few that write in sort of very strange ways, very deliberately vague ways. Most writers, though, are very direct. And I think there are very good kind of thematic reasons for that, why he chooses not to sort of show his hand a lot of the time. Yeah. Anyway, so this dialogue sort of concludes with, I mean, the slam dunk from Socrates is uh, that Protagoras is sort of proclaiming... Uh, it, attesting to sort of like all these different virtues like oh this is like the virtue and this is the virtue and socrates eventually sort of argues him down to accepting that um all, all virtues ultimately condense down to wisdom this idea that you would have wisdom of what virtues are so you you eventually trickle down to wisdom um and yeah and that's sort of where he gets the slam dunk but um interestingly enough this is actually a case where socrates is a liar um, and this is one of the few cases where he actually does, he tells a porky because like I said, mentioned before, this is like a nested narrative about where he's recounting uh, the story, the story of him, to, well, him talking to Pythagoras with this random person. But guess what? What he's talking about there um, actually happened earlier in the day. So this, so the whole narrative is um, nested within him saying to some random person, oh yeah, earlier today I was talking to blah, blah, blah. But at the end of this particular dialogue, he, sa he says to Protagoras, I've got some really important stuff to do. I'm off now. Bye. And then clearly, what? so, you know, if we are to believe this story, essentially he goes, oh, I've got some really important stuff. I've got to go. I've got to go do something else. Sorry, Protagoras. Walks out the door and just immediately starts talking to some random bloke about everything he just said. Um, well, so clearly he didn't it, have anything important to do. Maybe it is um, important. Yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe the idea there is that the whole point is that it's important, or probably more likely, it sort of shows that maybe some of Socrates' methods weren't entirely uh, on face value honest um, in necessarily everything he would say. Yeah, and so sort of moving on uh, from Protagoras uh, through these sort of like pre-middle dialogues, I guess. 
Uh, the next one I sort of have uh, to mention is Lackeys. Um, now, Lackeys is one that is essentially exploring, again, virtue, um, or arete, as it's called, uh, with a couple of generals. Uh, one, the eponymous Lackeys, and uh, a guy called Nicias. Um, the former having been uh, having actually led Socrates at a battle, um, and they begin to define this idea of what courage is, um, and that's sort of where the dialogue sort of takes place. Um, and Lackeys says that uh, courage is about sort of not running away, and um, Socrates basically goes, "Nah, that's not right." Uh, you know, presses the uh, button, and then, and then Nicias says, "Oh, well, what about you know knowing what to fight for?" Then Socrates goes, uh, "No." <laughs> And then deconstructs why it's, you know, well, I mean, for the not running away, he gives the example, well, sometimes, you know, um, you need to sort of, you know, there can be examples of courage where you need to run away. And there can be examples of um, courage without uh, knowing what to fight for. Um, and ultimately, the, the generals sort of admit they don't actually know really what courage means. Um they they kind of just like oh okay Socrates all right we don't really get what courage is fair enough um, and basically I, I think now that, get out of my house yeah. for fuck's sake stop annoying me well funny that this this one seems a little bit more cordial perhaps because of the uh, you know the, the history that Socrates has with these men but essentially yeah. they they sort of courageously admit to not knowing what courage is um, and yeah. also well I think that admission is is part of what Socrates is after but I I also think that Plato wants to end these dialogues deliberately open-ended a lot of the time because uh philosophy is eternal like the, the conversation is eternal if he had fixed answers on everything he'd be he by his own sort of way of thinking he'd be a twat like yeah although he, the, he, the he end of this is pretty these... yeah he's being a pretty bad like i mean the, yeah. i think the context of this conversation is the generals are talking to they're asking socrates oh who should we get for like tutors for our kids you know like who should we get who are good you know who should we recommend for uh, you know, who should we get to teach them and all that sort of thing. And by the end of the conversation, Socrates basically goes, tells the generals that they must seek a teacher for themselves before seeking one for their sons, which is great. They're just going, no, <laughs> you need to teach a, you need to be taught something first. Um, and, it, and in a way, it does kind of illustrate, like you just mentioned, it illustrates uh, partly why this, this kind of like Socrates, partly why he got executed. Like it, to basically these members of authority, he's very, you know, acerbic and just not particularly you know it doesn't uh sugarcoat his words no it's but it's that sort of um there's a truth there's a sort of raw truth but it's almost like there's people that go like oh I'd, you, you get what you get with me i won't bloody lie to anyone i'll call everyone a cunt you know that dickhead in the it's just like who has no tact who will just call everybody a cunt to their face yeah. for no, absolutely no reason it's yeah like, the, the, the distinction is with a socrates character is it's it's like you make they they often sort of make up for it with this extreme competence or they have a point to make it's like they have an important thing to uh point to make that they're sort of campaigning for that sort of from the outsider perspective makes it justifiable um although obviously living without the tact as we well know historically um does come with its its burden to bear um and so, so the next one that's sort of uh, another similar sounding one, Lysis, is is a little dialogue on friendship, and essentially the theme of it is defining is, is Socrates in a dialogue basically 
figuring out what uh, friendship actually means, what it is. And this is another anatreptic one. This is one that where there's no real answer, where they, they just sort of like play around with different definitions of what it means to be a friend for someone. What does it mean to be a friend? Uh, but never, you know, never really settling on a definition that they can wholeheartedly agree on or, or is free of criticism. And it's sort of, it's... Um, most of the dialogue, I mean, it starts off with this guy called Hypothalus, uh, um, who's in love with this guy called uh, Lysis, um, and sort of explores that. But it sort that's of another thing to mention. Plato was uh, he's big on the sausage. Yeah. Well, um, oh, they all were, mate. They all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, like Plato, especially, I think obviously didn't. I don't think he married or had any children or anything. And I think, yeah, he's a big bum boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to put it tactfully, um, and. Well, I mean, friendship in the, the Greek word is like philia, as, as you may have, you know, seen uh, borrowed over for a lot of random English sort of um, suffixes, you know, yeah. um, like, you know, like hydrophilic or something. Um, and the question basically is, the dialogue sort of takes place between Socrates and these two young, two young friends called Lysis and Menexus. Oh, Menexus, there we go, Menexus. Um, and essentially... He's he's inquired after for advice on love by these uh, by these two young uh, youths, um, and his first conversation essentially um, asks like is is again is he's not being nice. He kind of just like he kind of goes well okay so you, so you 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 two are friends like let's let's break this down then. You know okay so Lysis you know your parents uh, you know your parents love you. So, you know, why, but if you don't know, if you can't give me a definition for like what love is or friendship is, why should they love you? If you're, if you're useless, <laughs> why should your parents love you? It's literally, it's just literally just like that. And then Lysis is like, uh-oh, like, you know, Lysis can't really come up with anything, but now he's worried that his friend, um, Menexus, is going to like think of him as less of a friend because he's just been made, he's made to look bad in front of Socrates. So Lysis goes, um, can you, can you, Socrates, can you please like own him as well? So we're on equal footing. So we both, both feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then Socrates moves on to him and then basically, you know, goes down this, this route of, um, Socrates says that um, a good friend is what he values the most, but he doesn't actually have one <laughs> or know how they come to be. He's just like, I, I, I don't have any friends, so come on then. I, you know, how do you get friends then, uh, Metanexus? And uh, yeah, I think a lot of this is irony. Yeah, it's like yeah, this this def this definitely has some amount of ironic tone. Of course, the way I'm telling it is a little bit uh, a little bit comedic. Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't directly how it sort of this uh, this is the spirit of it, I suppose, but in a slightly more serious dialogue form. Um, and and yeah, Lysis goes on to defend the friendship he has, and um, basically tries to describe. And they try to go, they go down different routes. Like they try to describe like friendship as being like a like for like thing, like where two two goods uh, sort of attract together to become friends. But then they're like, well, no, that can't be right because that why would like two bad, you know, a bad and a bad or something like that automatically want to become friends? Um, that doesn't really make sense. Um, so they kind of abandon that definition. And again, they just they just try to define it like Menexus tries to define it with need. That goes well. There's some kind of mutual need relationship there. Um, well, and sort of you know some kind of reciprocity. But Socrates reduces this to the idea that all friendships are simply instrumental. So they're all just like everyone just needs someone because they need something out of that person or something. And so they go well, okay, well maybe it's not that. And um, yeah, to, the dialogue is inconclusive. So there's no there's no real like they don't really they sort 
sort of hit a lot of what you know false positives so to speak um when it comes to definition and they also and they also hit a lot of false negatives they hit things that maybe you know wouldn't work uh don't really fit into what a friendship might mean to most people and they also but they hit on stuff that could mean you know some things but not in all contexts um, yeah. and essentially that's what the dialogue is exploring and sort of going through yeah I, I think a lot of those themes are picked up later in symposium and dealt with in a much more substantial and arguably satisfying way yeah uh, a lot of that stuff to do with friendship and also how friendship connects with love because obviously they're talking they're not talking about women in this um although plato is um slightly more progressive than a lot of his contemporaries in terms of that kind of stuff like he he was happy to teach uh, women and thought that women should be taught uh i mean, guess we can talk more about that when we talk about the academy yeah but um yeah it, it's very interconnected with ideas of intellectual fulfillment between males and there's sort of like sexual elements crossed over with sort of bet this idea of betterment, betterment of the soul, betterment of uh, acquiring virtues, I think is, is a large part of, um, it's always up for people improving themselves, society improving themselves. He wants to, and he wants to sort of, as far as we can infer, go out and get that happening in the world. But yeah, just some, some of the tact with it is a bit, little bit um, off. Yeah. So the last like pre-middle dialogue uh, that we're going to cover, I'll just sort of mention to sort of tie this little first period of this 12-year traveling and writing, probably kind of uh, maybe Plato period, um, is Carmides. Um, and is once again another anatraptic work so it's another one that doesn't really he doesn't hammer home any kind of point or uh, particularly get anywhere with it uh, but this one is about exploring the meaning of temperance or self-control um, and it actually features uh, one of his his uncles well his uncle is Carmides um, and also a guy called uh, Critias who are uh, actually associated with the 30 tyrants which we've yeah it's, just a, mentioned. it's quite funny because he's so a, a man, a, a boy who would grow up to be a tyrant, he's talking about moderation too, and you know, self control and know thyself. And so, I, I think that's where a large part of the uh, context is sort of missed. Again, like if you're going to read these, it's probably worth because a, a lot of them are worth reading. Um, most definitely, they're even if you're not like that into philosophy, I think they're entertaining, but you do have to know who's who or to get to, well, to get the best out of it. Historical context, uh, yeah, does does help a lot with trying to figure out, okay, who are these people? Why are they in this dialogue? And why is the why is the tone of the dialogue what it is? Does does the actual like you know why are the, why are these characters relevant to what's being talked about? And you find out obviously that's to do with their um, their their on their history that ends up happening. Um, and yeah, so this one's on temperance. I got I just I like wrote like a little uh, just like a few notes on it, but it's basically just like um, so. Carmides is like asked okay by socrates okay well how do you define temperance he does this classic thing okay well what is temperance then all right Carmides. comedy goes and Carmides goes well okay well let, let's how about conduct themselves in a quiet and orderly way if we conduct ourselves in a quiet and orderly way that is what temperance is and socrates goes nah because you know sometimes you need to run sometimes you need to like if you want to go for a run you need to go run up run somewhere um you know, it's uh, that's that's obviously like you know defeats the whole idea. So it, it it must always be good. 
you know, if it's a virtue, it must always be good. So we, we can't have running in that criteria. And so companies go, oh, right, okay, look, look, let's try modesty and restraint. How's that? And Socrates goes and just quotes Homer. He just basically goes, well, modesty or a sense of shame is not good for a needy man. Uh, so it's like, oh, okay, all right. So how about doing one's own job then? How about that? How about that? Well, about doing your job. And Socrates says, well, if this is about doing your own business, then uh, what about people in service? What about people who are like, you know, like a lawyer or um, just anyone in, you know, in a service job? And somebody's like, all right, okay, okay. Like, how about maybe, maybe you just, maybe you just have to know when you're, when you're like temperate, when you're, when you're, uh, you know, when you've got that temperance. Um, and Socrates sort of says, well, but you said you don't know what temperance is. So if you don't know what temperance is, then how, how do you, you know, how can you ever be temperate? Um, and so Charmides uh, tries self-knowledge. How about that? Uh, and Socrates sort of ends kind of with, well, temperance is knowledge of itself. Um, and this idea of sort of temperance being this thing that's kind of almost like a, a degree, a sort of self-awareness. Um, and that's kind of where it's where it kind of like rests is as far as that dialogue is concerned. Exploring this definition of temperance could, you know, again, another one where essentially what they're doing is trying to unpack this particular virtue, this particular um, word that means something good or is considered something good. Uh, but they don't, they want to be able to nail down what it is to act in that way. Mm. I think one thing that's, particularly striking when you read all of these is that they're not particularly difficult. I think some people have this impression of philosophy, uh, particularly like, I guess later analytic philosophy, that it's full of very difficult concepts and it's full of lots of uh, heavy jargon. And, but apart from the historical context, and I think you do have to sort of read between the lines a lot of the time and be careful not to oversimplify and overgeneralize especially with some of the more substantial books in, in uh, to, especially towards his later uh, dialogues and things. Right, it's, it's worth mentioning that that was not a line-for-line line rereading of, of the of the comedies. That was definitely me making oh, it a very, like yeah, a very yeah. casual, very watered-down chat. Of course. Um, but it is, they are like much more involved and much more descriptive. Uh, but you get the idea of like this, 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 this idea of this back and forth, but you know, they're not... Um, the, the, the more the language can be denser than that but it, it's still it's still a conversation between two people and a lot of the problems that they're facing a lot of the things they're thinking about are not far removed from you know they're not yeah we, you know temperance is still a thing that we could think about and try to define today you know we can still yeah it, what it's not it it's not heidegger talking about being is is or like uh bergson talking about time it, it's not it's not to that degree um, and I, I think so long as you know the historical context, you can follow these conversations and largely understand them. Yeah, because there's, so, there's some books, I think, uh, uh, Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals, the Kant book, like that's just so dense. It's, it's um, to a lot of people, it's actually quite impenetrable. But yeah, the, I, I think um, there's this sense that Plato's kind of getting through some of the the questions here and the rest of philosophy is trying to figure out answers to these questions right and he doesn't become um until the next installment of 
you know, two beers till Phoenix's Plato. Uh, so far, it's been, you know, it's pretty sort of focused around virtue and a bit of sort of like, you know, piety and religion and the good um, and things like this in these early dialogues. Uh, you get a sense of, um, like like you said, like the way it's sort of written is less, uh, Socrates is not really necessarily going on about all these different ideas, novel concepts. A lot of it is just simply exploring this, this landscape of doubt in which a lot of this stuff exists. So to sort of wrap up um, this particular segment, I want to sort of go where, what happened to Plato sort of next? So he's, he'd gone for his travels, he'd written these works sometime during this period. Um, and then in around sort of, uh, I think it was like 387 BC, I think it was. Let me just double check. Yeah, so Sorry, 387 before, BC. Before we do the Academy, can we actually do, we talk through his influences? Uh, sure, can do that. So... I mean, aside from like Socrates, uh, as far as like his major influence is concerned, there's there's definitely uh, Pythagoras is certainly in there. I mean, we'll get more into that in the next one because uh, he sort of goes, you know, he supposedly studies a bit under the Pythagoreans for a while in Italy. Um, but as far as pre-Socratics are concerned, like you have, you know, people like Heraclitus and Anaxagoras. Um, you know, the ceaseless change and everything um, is a division of a more fundamental thing was kind of like this, um, was kind of like the idea that uh, was originally kind of established and Plato kind of took this sort of everything is reduced to a fundamental thing um, and flipped it into a more metaphysical idea of, um, again, this is going to be more of a second part thing, to be honest. Um, yeah, so for, for now, we'll just say, so... Yeah. Heraclitus was the guy we talked about in the first episode. The guy who thought that everything is in flux, the world's made of fire. And I think this thing about the world being in flux influenced a lot of Plato's skepticism, which is obviously embodied through uh, Socrates. And uh, a few things about the material world and, and the, the fickleness of people's views and how quick they can change. I think that's something that's that's carried over from Heraclitus. And with Parmenides, obviously, his whole thing was that things are eternal. And I think a lot of that Plato was looking into. And this, yeah, I, I think this is like kind of the second part thing, but it's this idea that there are certain things that are eternal and immaterial and ceaseless and never changing. And that's that's very important to the right. development with, of Plato's ideas. Right. With Parmenides, it was this sort of like metaphysical unity is the sort of umbrella I put it under where it's this idea that you have um some oneness to all things and all things are just a manifestation and of the, some the one underlying the, things yeah um and I mean Zeno also probably bummed Plato so there you go <laughs> Zeno was a student of Parmenides um but yeah I mean so Plato around uh 387 BC returns to Athens um and this is where one of his other major claims to fame if, is if he didn't need another one comes from uh, it's where he founded the academy and the academy was basically this educational institution um in, in which essentially people would go in and it's learn. the world's first uni yeah yeah essentially it's where the word academic comes from uh the socratic method was used and taken very seriously geometry was taken very seriously i mean the the 
the, the inscription above translated into English was let none but geometers enter here. Yeah, that's um, very disputed, but but yeah. The, the math things, he thought that you should obviously learn a lot of fucking maths before you go anywhere near philosophy. Again, this whole idea of trying to remedy doxa and, and remedy uh, kind of unqualified thinking. You want, he likes expertise, he likes informed expertise. Uh, but it's worth noting that he actually, the academy itself actually had a very functional use. He was not just training people to think, he was training people to be statesmen in a lot of cases. And a lot of uh, very influential and useful kind of people went through the academy. Not least Aristotle himself, yep. who we'll get to at a later time. So in the next episode, we're going to be discussing uh, his sort of middle period and getting more into more of his serious works and the next sort of stage of his life and where he sort of went after these kind of early works. And now we've sort of established who he is. But yeah, um, all the beans. Yeah.